Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I mean, obviously at the time I was quite young, 12 days old, didn't really have much of a title then. My name was my name. No one knew what to call me, so I was the, I guess, star of the unfortunate show at the time, and it's pretty much how it went. In 1993, Paul Denyer murdered Natalie Russell, Elizabeth Stevens, and Deborah Freem in the Frankston area. 
Denya had also stalked and terrified women. That's one of the lesser-known aspects of his horrendous offending. Now age 50, Denya was sentenced to life in prison without parole. But the sentence was later appealed and reduced to a non-parole period of 30 years, meaning Denya is eligible for release in 2023. There's a genuine fear from many that Denya will be released, from the families of Natalie, Elizabeth and Deborah, but also from the women who were stalked by Denya. Our guest for this episode is one of the family members who is speaking up. Jake Blair was 12 days old when his mum Deborah was murdered by Denya. Though he's almost 30 now, he's still known as Baby Jake to the Frankston community. He was a fluffy-haired newborn, cradled in the arms of his dad Gary, in a picture that ran in newspapers across Australia. Over the years, many people, including myself, have wondered what happened to him. What was life like for baby Jake? The ripple effect of Denya's shocking actions has permeated every area of Jake's life. He's had it tough and has had many setbacks and a further tragedy when his dad Gary died when Jake was just 18. Jake recently returned to live in Melbourne after spending much of his life in South Australia. Jake has no doubt that Denya will pose a threat to the community if released. The day we recorded, Jake came into the studio with author and podcaster Vicky Petratus. Vicky wrote the book, The Frankston Murders. She has an upcoming Case File Presents podcast series, revisiting the horrific crimes of Denya, where there'll be new information revealed about the ripple effect of the Frankston killer's offending, Denya's life in prison, and confirms why so many people think Denya should never be released from prison. And a special mention to Gail a listener and big supporter of this podcast, who also came into the studio on the day I spoke to Jake. Gail is from the Frankston community and is supporting Jake while he settles into life back in Melbourne. We begin with Jake telling us about life when he was a child. In recent times, basically, life hasn't exactly treated me too well. Nothing's been the greatest, of course, like... People always took advantage of my title, being Baby Jake. They always treated me, you know, differently to how I feel I should have been treated. Now that I'm here, now that I'm home, I guess I can say, I, you know, I feel completely different. I feel like I've got myself back. I feel like I've got my spirit again. I'm able to be who I am and just do what I need to do to keep moving forward sort of thing. Going back to when you were a kid, obviously, you know, you lost your mum when you were a newborn, so you don't have any memories of your mum? No, none whatsoever. The other thing I've got really is just photographs and um, stories from people, which, you know, I haven't really delved into finding these stories and stuff like that, but when I do hear them, it's, you know, it's a bit of a weight off my shoulders to know she was that good person, all that sort of stuff. My dad, he was very, I guess, he wasn't exactly always there, but he just tried to raise me as to become a man sort of thing, and I was probably about, what, nine, maybe 10 or something like that when I found out and he finally told me I was in I guess year three or year four and um, I told a story about it to one of the children. What I knew wasn't really anything to put a real picture of it together so what I told at the school was it was blasphemic I guess you could say it was very out there. I twisted the story to incredible lengths and people were I guess they were frightened to be around me. They didn't know how to treat me after I told the story. 
I can't remember the child's name at the time, but I told him that I was in the car and that we were both driven to a cliff edge and um, that's where it all happened and stuff like that. I told them that I was left in the car and that's the only reason that it was found and all that sort of stuff. So twisted the story to such a degree. And um, yeah, once that had happened, I had to be pulled aside and through class and stuff. And um, yeah, the whole details of it had to be told to the principal and stuff like that at the school. I just didn't know what was going on sort of thing. I just thought nothing of it. Like It was just something that had happened to me at that stage. It wasn't really emotionally connected to it or anything like that. It was, you know, me still finding out. I got the rest of the day off and sat around at home for about two or three hours. And my dad didn't, he didn't speak at all. I didn't speak at all. I was just in my room playing my game. And then he came in and he just handed me a big pile, I guess you can say, of magazines and a few newspaper clippings and stuff and said, look, mate, you're going to have to read this. Like, this is going to give you more details as to how it happened. Dealing with the emotions of it at that sort of age when I wasn't really aware of my own emotions and stuff. At times, it could have been tough. Like It was quite a struggle through school, quite distracted at times, thinking, why wasn't mum there? Yeah, it was just different, very different. And when did you move away from the Frankston area and where did you go? I think from the start, like, obviously I was about 12 days old or something when it happened, so I'm not exactly sure how old I was when I moved, but pretty sure we went straight to um, Queensland up in Yapoon and uh, that was, you know, I remember a little bit a bit about up there, but... After that, we came back to Victoria and we were living in Warrnambool and Casterton and stuff like that, small little rural towns. So we moved around a lot sort of thing. And then after a while, uh, my dad had met someone else and we moved into South Australia. Why do you think you moved around so much? My dad was probably not exactly the most financially stable person to be able to continue living in a house. Like We were going through caravan parks and stuff like that. So you moved to South Australia with your dad and his partner? Yeah, it was his partner and four other children, which was quite difficult, but I guess he sort of wanted me to have the same sort of upbringing he had because he had four brothers and sisters as well and it was a very like situation. So I guess in a way, being the brother from the outside, I guess, you know, the outsider of the family, I always felt like I wasn't supposed to be there and stuff like that, but I just kept being led back. The relationship with my brother and my sisters, like it just kept growing and growing and growing. Obviously, we cared about each other, we loved each other, we just wanted to go out and do things and have fun with each other. So me and my brother, we would just go out and ride bikes and stuff like that all the time. Just do what we could to, I guess, be away from home because obviously home life wasn't exactly the best because of how at times we would fight and bicker and uh, Rebecca, obviously, at the time, which was my father's partner, would get in the way. She didn't exactly approve of some of the things we do, which was, you know, building jumps out the back, digging holes out the back to build those jumps. Just It was always just trying to have fun, really. That's pretty much what we did for each other. Gary, Gary Blair, obviously, um, he was the best dad he could have been, considering all the facts, like, was quite depressed, all that sort of stuff. Like, he was going through all the alcoholic abuse and drug abuse at times, despite the fact of palming me off and stuff like that. When he was around, he always did his best to make sure that I was smiling and stuff like that. There was obviously disciplinary issues, but that was mostly my fault because... Not knowing left or right at that stage, he was trying to just, I guess you could say, raise me to be the perfect man. And at times it probably took more toll on him personally and emotionally than it did for me because I just was clueless. Didn't really think towards the future, anything like that, to what I could become. Basically, when I say palmed off, like I wasn't exactly always within his care for a like, majority of the time when I was quite young. 
he was always depressed trying to take his mind off of things, go out and do things with his mates, you know, people that he knew. Alcohol, that was quite strong with him. Like he didn't stop drinking ever. Like he tried to when he was working. He always tried to find good things to do, but it was always the more negative side of things that was doing him the best to take his mind away from it. When he was around, he was either working on cars, working on bikes, putting things together and stuff like that. Just always trying to keep himself distracted, make sure that I've seen, you know, what it is to be a man, like at home, doing what a man does. He didn't exactly teach me about all the motor mechanics and all that sort of stuff that he was into and stuff like that. I sort of had to learn all that on my own. But me, I was closed away in my room a lot of the time when he was around, just playing on the game and anything that would help me keep distracted from the fact that he wasn't there. After a while, once I'd found my roots through life, found out what I like, found out what I don't like, it started to become a bit easier. But I think he just sort of felt estranged at times because having learnt all these things, I was doing my own thing. I didn't really have much thought of, I wonder what Dad's doing, I wonder if he's okay. It was, you know, it was all about me. I mean, you know, as kids, we don't really think about our parents' needs. I mean, I gave zero thought. Who used to care for you at the times your dad wasn't able to? There was lots of people. Like, it was, honestly, it was a quite large range of females to males. It was mostly my mum's side of the family that I was pushed to. All these sort of different parents that have had less of a struggle through raising their kids and stuff like that. Obviously, there's the usual struggles with raising children of your own. But um, for these other people, I think it was a bit different for them to be raising a child that wasn't theirs because it was less stress of, oh, I can hand this child back. Like, I can just say, you know, this is my kid. I can not exactly treat them how I want, but I'm going to treat them to the best of how I feel. Obviously, my grandmother, Anne, she was very, very supportive of, you know, me being there and all that sort of stuff, trying to also show me a different side of life of this is what I should be getting and what I should be working towards, all that sort of thing, like giving me really a lot more than what I would expect out of someone like that. Things went pretty bad with your dad, didn't they? Are you able to talk about what happened to your dad? He died in 2012, but it was a couple of years before that. It was a motorbike accident. We were out in a quarry on Mount Sinai Road near Mount Gambia. And um, it was just a a day like any other when we go riding, except I'd got a new bike, my stepbrother had a new bike, and my dad had a new bike. So we're all, you know, learning the equipment sort of thing, I guess you could say. He went up this big embankment that was probably 40 foot on one side, and then there was a big straight drop on the other side, which was 29 foot. And he went over the rise of the embankment, not realising. Front wheel had swept out from underneath him and straight away he'd just gone straight down to his head. The bike had landed on him. He was all twisted up and mangled underneath the bike, probably about a foot, maybe two foot away from a stump. So if he had hit the stump, he would have been completely out by then. But luckily he didn't hit the stump. He just hit his head pretty hard and, yeah, snapped his neck and a few vertebrae, I guess. He ended up paralysed from the neck down and, uh, yeah, he was bedridden for the next two and a half years and ended up in uh, Hampstead Rehabilitation in Adelaide. And that was a struggle for us, having to go back and forth, you know, every two weeks or something like that, even every week just to be there. And that's probably what caused a lot of financial stress within Rebecca and myself and the family and all that sort of stuff. She, you know, didn't really know how to treat me. After that, she just did the best she could. We'd just gotten him back from Adelaide probably six months beforehand and um, you could see him really declining. Like he wasn't 
going in for he wasn't doing his physio or anything like that he wasn't doing anything to try and at least get some sort of feeling back in his hands or legs or anything and uh, his body was just i guess decaying over time like it was literally you could see that it was just his head that it was alive and his toes were curling his hands were curling everything was just going completely downhill and uh yeah he was on peg feed everything like that just straight into his stomach not being able to eat would have been more mentally straining on him than any of us not being able to be the father he wanted to be i guess to even the stepchildren but especially me and there were times where i got a bit emotional and i would take it out verbally on him and stuff like that i wasn't really too aware of what i was saying at the time but then i'd pay for it a lot afterwards with my own beating myself up i guess got the bike on my 15th birthday but i was 18 by the time you know he'd passed away so yeah over that two and a half three years it was just very different like i was treated differently at school and everything and i didn't want people to t treat me differently i wanted them to treat me how i was just another person going to school doing my own thing because i didn't want people to i guess trigger the thoughts by that stage i sort of realized the capabilities of mental triggers you know being self-aware like to such a strength of you know being able to keep such a strong heart on everything and make sure other people were smiling as well as myself it was just all i wanted was i wanted to see people smiling sounds like a lot of pressure for a young person it definitely was like having even teachers like i'd get in trouble at school and the teachers would i guess they'd give me a light sentence you could say just treating me completely different like and yes i was different for what i'd been through but i didn't want to be different at that time i just wanted to be another child are you still in contact with Rebecca? No, she passed away two years ago. I'm sorry. You mentioned before about, you know, mental triggers, trauma. How did you come to understand that you're actually impacted by your mum Debbie's murder, even though you're a baby? I uh, learnt it all on my own, basically. There was one counselling session and that was literally it, which taught me a lot about how the mental computer I guess you can say works there's a filing cabinet and all that sort of stuff within our brain that we sort of put things in and that's how our brain organizes itself but I sort of learned how to break that filing cabinet open and use heaps of different filing cabinets so in a weird way I wasn't always the same person around different people and stuff like that I always knew to tread lightly or you know to be a bit heavier on some people which you know people started to look up to me as not just a friend as also that role model type when being able to deal with emotional damage and any physical damage as well. I ended up being, I guess, a teacher in a way to a lot of people not understanding their own emotions. It does sound like, you know, you were giving a lot of yourself and people who other people lean on for support often don't look after themselves. How's things been for you personally as much as you want to talk about it and how have you coped because it's not been easy uh, i took a lot of pages out of my dad's book i was alcohol drugs anything like that i just did what i could to deal with myself numb myself so i could care for others more than myself because the more i cared for myself the more backwards i felt like i was going why was that i'm not honestly sure like i think i was just more afraid of things and um to be successful was always my dream but i was scared of the dream itself because i just didn't feel like i was living my own life uh, my English skills were just, you know, I guess they'd surprise a lot of people because by the, uh, I think it was year nine or year 10, I was I had completed 
the entirety of uh, high schooling English and stuff like that. So I took a real liking to being on the English side of things and learning all the writing, how words were. Like at times I'd even find myself saying things that I didn't even know I knew. Did you read a lot when you were a kid? I did when I was with my grandma. So she would always encourage that sort of thing. She encouraged me to either read or be outside. And I was, you know, one of the two. There was never sit around in front of a TV or anything like that. It was just use your brain, use your body, learn the best that you can. So that's Anne, Debbie's mum? Yes. Did Anne talk to you about Debbie? No. No, I think she might have had a lot more emotional damage than I guess anyone really having her child uh, be taken, I should say before she was, you know, at that stage of life where she, her life would end or anything like that. She just sort of let that be in the background, sort of let me learn in my own way. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Vicky Petratus, you're here supporting Jake as well as Gail, who is a big supporter of our podcast and Vicky, your work. And Jake, you're staying with Gail at the moment while you find your feet back in Melbourne. Vicky, you've known Jake for a long time and so has Gail. And of course, you're the expert, so to speak, on the story of the Frankston murders as they're known. How did you first come into contact with Jake and form the friendship relationship that you have now? I first got in touch with Jake on social media and probably the biggest reason was that every time I did a talk on the Frankston case, people would come up to me and say, whatever happened to baby Jake? And that was, I think, the question that I got most asked. So I found Jake on Facebook and we started communicating and we would message each other a lot and I said to Jake, I want to update the book and people are really interested in what's happened to you. And so I was able to add Jake's part, you know, Jake's life and what had happened to him in the meantime 
then when the anniversary came up and Gail and I were both working on commemorating that in a big way. And so we got baby Jake to come over, who was then 25. And I did say to him on the day, I said, today, I know that you're 25, but today you're going to be baby Jake. So we did it at the bike track. So we did it on Natalie's anniversary. Because Debbie was found on an unmade road, the track where Natalie was found seemed to be the best place to have a place where you could go to remember all three girls. And I was just talking to Brian McManus, head of the Frankston SES, the other day, and he said how every 30th of July they go down to the track and they'll often bump into Brian and Carmel because they'll be down the track as well. He said, we remember all three girls. So it's become a place, even though it was only the site of Natalie's murder, it has become a place that went from when she died, if you look at the old archival footage, it's this overgrown, horrible track. And over the years, because it has become a memorial for the girls, and it's called Nat's Track, that there's been a lot of community pressure to make it beautiful and to create a memorial where uh, Natalie's body was left. But then right at the end of the track on Sky Road, there's this beautiful sculpture of a school bag and I think they're butterflies, uh, you know, 17 butterflies on this sculpture to represent that she was 17. Just the way that people responded to Jake was extraordinary. Like I was taking him around and introducing him and I'd say this is Debbie Frame's son Jake and people were just hugging him and pushing money into my hand to go give that to baby Jake and and there was just I felt that Jake that day was the son of Frankston. I felt like everybody there knew what he'd been through. We all knew that picture on the front page of the newspaper with Gary and, and holding that tiny little fluffy-haired baby, and everybody's heart broke. And I think when we were able to bring him back as an adult and say, this is Jake, people just, it was extraordinary. And I remember you saying to me, Jake, that I said, you know, I want to introduce you to Carmel and Brian, Natalie's mum and dad. And he said, I'm I'm nervous. And I said, of anyone, they will understand you and they will understand where you're coming from. And so it was just one of those days that's unforgettable. And then the SES arrived and they marched over the hill and this whole crowd of SES people. And I feel like that day was a really pivotal day. And I feel like when he went back to Mount Gambia, I feel like his journey back to Melbourne was just a matter of time. Jake, what was it like when you had contact from Vicky and came back down to Melbourne because you hadn't lived in Melbourne for a long time, had you? Mm, not at all. Um, it was honestly quite different having reached out on Facebook, obviously social media, like what was it, the Frankston community page I think it was. Yeah, she'd seen my posts and from there like I got up here and it was just a completely different experience. Meeting all the people, it was just really incredible to see like so many people were you know loving of me as baby jake and to see so many people willing to give like i just could not believe my life like honestly didn't know how to take it i was obviously very nervous all that sort of stuff like almost scared i guess you could say but at the same time i had vicky there i had gail there i had a fair few people there to make sure i wasn't too skittish about it i guess you can say yeah just the warmth of it all was it was just a really different experience like it was just something I'd never had before. I think in the minds of people in Frankston, 
they've never diminished it. And I think that's why Jake was so welcome when he came back. I think when you're away from Frankston and living a different life, I think that it's easy for people to forget what, and I know that Jake doesn't want to be defined as baby Jake. I think that's, you know, he's 29 and so he doesn't want to be defined. I think in my mind going back over this story for the podcast that I'm making, when you see the callousness of Denya saying to the detectives, they said, what did you notice when you got in the car? And he says, a baby seat. He knew what he was taking and it just makes me so angry because that one decision, that half an hour on the 8th of July in 1993 changed Jake's life forever and changed Gary's life forever and I just I find that immensely sad. Yeah, me too. And I know that as these murders were unfolding and hearing that Debbie had a newborn baby, you, Jake, the terror for women, for families, for parents. It's unbelievable. And I think that's why people feel very strongly about the fact that Denya is eligible for parole next year. He's done 30 years. Now, when he was originally sentenced, it was to life with no parole. Vicky, can you give us the details for people who aren't aware about the facts of what's happening. When Daniel went to court, he pleaded guilty. And so he was caught the day after Natalie. So he's caught on the 31st of July. And by Christmas, he was in court and he pleaded guilty and he was given a life sentence. By pretty much New Year's Eve, so about a week later. Things don't move that fast usually. What what do you think that was about? Was it just the time it happened or the absolute magnitude? I think we forget how politicised this was. When this was all happening, there were huge calls for the death penalty. There were public marches. Jeff Kennett would go on Neil Mitchell's radio show every week and they would discuss it. And Jeff Kennett had made comments about this. So this went, this was political as well as it was social. And when he pleaded guilty and it just went to trial within six months of it happening. But when he got the life sentence, he never expected that. I had a letter that he'd written to someone in his family in the lead up to the trial and he actually says, oh, yeah, I think I'll get about 20 years. He had no idea that he would get a life sentence. So he appealed that very quickly And the appeal was granted and he got a 30-year minimum sentence. So he still has a life sentence, but he has a 30-year non-parole period. There was a massive public outcry like we'd never seen before. And, And Neil Mitchell led a lot of this. He was a real voice for the family and they are forever grateful. But what they did is they, the Department of Public Prosecutions, appealed the appeal and it went all the way to the High Court And then the High Court didn't allow that. But they tried because it was such an unpopular decision. So back then they were agitating for that life sentence to mean life. And in a practical sense, next year, Denya can apply for parole. If granted, what will life look like for Denya on the outside? Well, this is one of the really big problems For one, I don't think he's going to get parole because if he goes before a parole board, as a prison officer that I interviewed said, he said, 
When someone gets out on parole and they commit a crime and the parole board could say, oh, we never saw that coming, it's not our fault, then there's, you know, they have a leg to stand on. But if they let him out, there is no way that anyone is going to say when he commits more crimes, oh, we didn't see that coming because, of course, you could see it coming. So that gave me a little bit of comfort to think, okay, that's, that's a factor. But here's what I worry about. In prison, he gets his kudos by hanging out with a whole bunch of really awful criminals and they sit around and talk about, on occasion, what they've done. So all of his glory and all of his notoriety in prison comes from being a serial killer. Now, you put him out in the community and all of a sudden there's not notoriety, there is absolute hatred and loathing So there's no kudos attached to what he's done. In fact, people will hate him. So he can't any longer trade on the fact that he's a serial killer and he's high on the pecking order of the worst of the worst. So what does he do again to get that back? And that's the worry. Does he go out and commit another crime to show that, again, he's the worst of the worst and to get back that kudos? And when one of the prison officers who looked after him said that to me, I thought, Oh, my God, I had never thought of it like that. But releasing him from prison takes away all of the things that he trades on. I hadn't thought of it like that either. I just feel incredibly strong about the fact that he would do it again, just for that plain fact, and for the protection of families as well as the women that were around to experience the fear. It was obviously passed on through the generations since being in jail and that fear, it, does, it doesn't get easier to deal with. It just gets stronger. It can only scare you more and more and more because you're going to sit there, you're going to dwell on it. And if he ends up being out, it's not just going to be as simple as it used to be for him. Life has changed outside of prison. Everything is completely different. So if he comes out, and like Vicky said, if he comes out to proclaim his dangerous side and what he's like, it's going to hurt him more than it is for him to be inside And I'm not saying keep him away to protect him. I'm saying keep him away because that's what he deserves. People shouldn't have to live in fear. We should be able to live our own lives. We should be able to be who we are without having to think, oh, this person is going to hurt me. Something like this could happen to me. To not be able to go walk on a beach safely, to not be able to go out at night and like mum, like my mother Debbie, not be able to pick up milk or anything like that from the milk bar at 2 o'clock in the morning when their baby is distraught, crying their eyes out, unable to be settled. That's the sort of fear that needs to be distinguished to be able to raise children a lot easier because if you think you can't leave home, you're going to be sitting at home stressing because your baby is sitting there hungry, thirsty or anything like that and you can't go out because someone's going to get me. That needs to be distinguished. And can I just say that we must never forget that Denya targeted two of the victims that he killed were carrying school bags. He's targeting teenagers Debbie was a young mum with a baby seat in the back, so he's targeting women with babies. When he broke into Donovan's flat and stabbed through the baby bassinet, that these crimes are targeting women and babies. He also rammed women with shopping trolleys that had babies with them and a baby ended up in hospital. So he's targeting women, children and babies This is a very, very dangerous offender targeting the most vulnerable. A lot of people are really waiting for 
your next podcast to come out, which is, of course, about the Frankston murders. So tell us about what you are hoping to do with this podcast. What what I've always focused on is the human side of this and what we had was a seven-week period of terror where three women were murdered and Rosa Toth was um, attacked. But I think that this goes so much further than that. And I always knew that I would do it, but when the idea solidified, it was when Donna Vaines's mum, Gloria, sent me a message and she said, I just want people to know that Donna never got over this. And I know that we talk about the other victims, but my daughter, I feel, was this hidden victim. Donna Vaines was uh, a friend of Paul Denyer's and she had met him when she was staying with her sister who lived in the same block of units. And what I find really creepy is that Denya lived in Unit 1. In Unit 2 was a woman named Julia and he'd broken into Julia's flat and slashed her clothing and cut her throats on all of her pictures. When this happened, Julia moved out and Denya just started having coffee at the next unit and that was Trisha Vane's and her sister Donna. So when Donna moved around the corner to Claude Street, one night Denya came around and broke into her flat and killed her cat and its two kittens. And the police had never seen anything like this. And they they were without a doubt said if Donna and her baby had been home, he would have killed both of them. And I think the stabbing the bassinet and the killing of the cats was ample proof of that. So when Gloria got in touch, and Donna has since passed away, but she said, I just want people to know Donna's story. I want people to know just how affected she was and how frightened she was forever and how worried she was right up until the time that she died. She would say, Mum, what would happen to me if he got out? Would he come after me again? That was the, the first true understanding that I had, that not only were the families affected and worried that he would get out and maybe come after them again. But all of these women on the periphery that he had stalked and terrorised were also, they lived in fear. And so when I went back to revisit this case, it's just every day I'm learning something new. So many people, since I've started the podcast, I put a call out for anyone who was a victim of his stalking and this avalanche of people came forward and just their stories. What I've really come to understand in the making of the podcast was that he got off on generating fear and he generated fear in his community, he generated chaos and that's his happy place. I think we we hear a lot about the narrative that he's gone into prison and then, you know, the gates are shut and we don't hear anything more. And so I've interviewed retired prison officers. I've interviewed a woman who went to visit him in prison because she felt a connection with him because she had a transgender person in her family and she felt a connection to him and began writing to him. And the letters were very friendly and there was a real connection there. And then he encouraged her or at that stage, Stage he was identifying as Paula. Paula encouraged her to come for a visit and what she found when she visited was someone very different and very frightening and very different from the very friendly letters. And so I get her insight into what she saw and some of the things that he revealed to her and then prison officers who were looking after him around that time. And I think it's just really opened my eyes as to the kind of person he is in prison. 
and the people that he associates with and hangs out with, and it's, it's a very, very frightening picture. I had lunch with Carmel and Brian recently and Carmel said to me, she said, I'm nearly 80. I am too old to fight. I don't, I can't. I'm too old for this. And I said to her, Carmel, we'll take up the fight for you. David's in Parliament. He's agitating for the law to be changed to keep Daniel in prison. My podcast is is coming out. John Sylvester's made a documentary for Stan. So all of these people are in the community taking up the fight. I guess what I want people to know is what he did and what he took and the ripple effect. And that's why Jake's story is so important because Jake is the embodiment of this is the ripple effect that continues to today. This wasn't just something that happened 29 and a half years ago. This is something that we are still suffering the effects of that today. Jake, I feel like when you, I was asking you how life's been and how you've been coping, you did mention it's been hard, but I mean, there have been periods of time that have been as hard as they get. You know, you've not had places to live. That's fair to say, yeah? Yeah, yeah. For about 11 years, I think it was, I pretty well didn't have a single stable like household. By the end of it, I wasn't even able to get help by homeless communities and stuff like that, like homeless services, I should say. They just thought that I was a lost cause, basically. And that's where I guess I ended up relying on like drugs and stuff like that. And by the end of it, I just ended up reaching out to Vicky and I said, look, I can't do it here anymore. This just isn't working. Like I'm not able to get my own house and be in a stable household. The house I had was bare minimum for everything. Like it was just a two bedroom unit and it was just shocking, absolutely shocking. Like very small, like a jail cell, basically. What kind of work have you been doing on and off over the years? In Mount Gambier, I was doing forestry work, so I was planting trees and stuff like that down there. I was done car detailing. I've done roustabout work. Finally, I've come here and I've been doing concreting and stuff like that, which is just, it's so much different. Like, concreters really are a different breed. Like, there is just not a single moment where you're not working hard. If you enjoy your job, you enjoy your job. Being outside, that's how I really enjoy things. And to be out in the sun and working, it's just been an incredible change to what I've had in the past. And what are your hopes for your future, for your life in Melbourne, in Victoria? Well, I guess I can say now that I'm home, I don't want to leave. I'm just going to keep working as much as I can, building a life and eventually try and get my own house. It's most people's dream to have a house and stuff like that of their own, that they don't have to worry about someone coming along and say, no, you're not welcome here anymore. For me, like I've even said this to Vicky, I want to be independent. I want to be able to look after myself and working is the only way I'm going to be able to do that. So that's pretty much the way I'm doing it. And Vicky has had to enlighten the fact that, yes, I was a victim because I had a whole life taken away from me. There is often times I think, and I've even said to Vicky once or twice, like I could have been a lawyer, I could have been a doctor, I could have been someone completely different. But unfortunately, because I didn't feel that emotional support from a mother and I didn't have the actual real emotional support, I didn't know how to accept my own self, I guess you can say. Despite how thankful and grateful I am to Vicky as well as Gail for all the help that they've done by getting me up here, giving me a stable house, I can understand that once I am able to make that step, they will see that the help they've given, you know, has been worth it. It's really improving in the way I'm living. I know I caught up with Gail a few weeks ago and she was, before you moved down, and she was 
really looking forward to feeding you, making sure you had nutrition and just, yeah, giving you a bit of stability. I can say now she's definitely feeding me well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to Jake, Vicky and Gail. Vicky's podcast for Casefile will be released later this year. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio, hubaustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. 